We don't like change at His Hill is the joke. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to read starting in verse 12. All right, Philippians 1, 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, as Kelly just said, we want to make much of your name. God, we want to be people that are beholding the glory of Jesus and that our faces, our hearts, our words, our, our whole heart, God, is just changed in transformation, God, that we would truly behold the glory of Jesus through your word this morning and, God, our faces would shine with your glory as we leave this place, as we fellowship together, as we go out into this world, God, that we would not be defined by our own hearts, our own minds, our own uh, hopes, our own expectations, Lord, but in all of our ways that we would acknowledge you as holy, that we would see you in your glory, God, and our hearts would be at rest, that you are for us, and because you are for us, nothing and no one can stand against, and may our hearts just rejoice in that freedom, God, that you are sovereign, and your sovereignty, you're good, God, in your goodness, you are all-powerful, and in your power, you are working all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your plan. May we see that and rejoice as Paul did this morning together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. And as you have a seat, you may notice that around you it's very open and very spacious. There's two reasons for that. Charlie's gone. That makes sense. Uh, and the students are gone. Students are in Nacogdoches, Texas. They left about, and what is that? About two hours ago, so they're about two hours in their seven-hour journey in, by bus to Nacogdoches, Texas for our uh, annual service project trip there. Charlie, however, is not with them. He is much further. He's in Pennsylvania celebrating, uh, I guess, a 50th year reunion, high school reunion with Patsy. So um, he'll be back and then join him on the mission trip. That leaves me and all the staff wives, <laughs> including my own family, <laughs> at his hill. And that left me to... Uh, for Charlie to ask if I'd be willing to preach. And as always, um, it's not just a joy to, you know, say yes to Charlie. I was telling someone recently, you know, whenever Charlie asked me to preach, 
it's, it's a yes for me, you know, on, on one reason, just because he has been such a blessing to me, you know, and he has looked out after Jewel and I and our family so much. And any way that we can help him, it is on our hearts to, to say yes. But also, uh, not just Charlie, but for you all as well, it's a joy to be able to share God's word with you all. And just always the encouragement that it is to, to be with you as a family. So, so thank you for the opportunity to preach again. Some of you um, may know this about me, my wife probably the most, followed by my kids and then my mom, uh, know that I'm a pretty avid, I don't know, I don't like the word avid, but yeah, I, I enjoy watching sports. And I have my teams, and I've been telling Callum, okay, Callum, who's our soccer team? Oh, the Cowboys. I said, no, no, Cowboys are our football team. We have a football team. You know, Arsenal's our, our soccer team. Cowboys are our football team. The Spurs are our basketball team. He's just so overwhelmed with the amount of, you know, teams that we have to like and you know, our family roots for. You know, and it's football season as well as soccer season right now. And, and so a lot of sports going on and, and uh, obviously can't get to all the games. Don't want to watch all the games, but I enjoy seeing my team win, hopefully like every sports fan does. And uh, sometimes you may be, you know, like me, you're watching your team and you, you don't know the outcome, right? You don't know if it's going to be a win or a loss. Uh, you don't know if you're going to beat your rival or not. You, you simply don't know some of these things. And sometimes it's nice not being able to watch the game and being able to check the score later and to say, wow, we won. And just to avoid all the drama and all the anxiety and all the potential, you know, worry of if your team's going to make it out, some of you are like, it's, it's sports. It's, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, and I'm you know, weaning off of that myself. But there is such a nice uh, new thing that I'm learning. It's called highlights, where you can see the score, and then you can go back and watch the game in a very abbreviated version, no commercials, and you can see all the best parts of the game and knowing that your team wins, you can watch all the highlights and say, wow, it's going to be crazy knowing that they win even though our best player got hurt. Or knowing that he's thrown five interceptions. How is this going to even be possible? But you know, with restful assurance, somehow it works out in the end. And so you're watching the highlights and it's fun rather than fearful and anxious and worrisome. And I've, uh, I've enjoyed that cure for anxiety, knowing the end of all things, <laughs> knowing how that it works out and that it works out in some cases for our good. But in God's case, it always works out and it always works out for good. And there's times in life where you're like, how is this going to work out for good? I know the end. I know the promises, but I don't know how we get there. I don't know the means quite yet. And God says, this is the life that I've called you to, the life of faith, a life of adventure, a life of trust, in which you get to see excitingly how, day by day, I'm going to work all things out for good in your life. And I can't help but to read Philippians 1 and come out with just that rejoicing, excited, and kind of almost adventurous spirit of how Paul is spurring on the Philippian church to trust the Lord when things go sideways, when things go different according to our expectations. It's really one word that you get out of this, this first section here of Philippians, that is God 
is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereign just meaning that the noun of it, meaning that uh, God is a, the, the supreme ruler. He holds all things in his hands. But also the adjective, God is sovereign, in that he possesses all power. Not just to know all things, not just to see all things, but now to work all things according for good. What the enemy meant for evil, even the Old Testament recognizes, Joseph says, God is able to turn that and work it for good. That's my you know, personal full belief on, on God's sovereignty. It is not the absence of choice. I don't think that's really the full good definition of sovereignty. It, that's, that feels more like dictatorship. That feels more like tyranny, and that's really not true power. I believe true power of a true sovereign is to work all things together for good as those who are following him, see him, behold him, and love him. They want to do things according to his desire. They want to walk in a manner worthy of representing their king well. And God, through faithfulness and even unfaithfulness, is able to bring those purposes to pass in man's choice. That's, in my mind, the, the greatest picture of God who is the supreme ruler and who possesses all power. It's, it's sad that it's such a debated topic that, we, that takes away from the glory of God. Even as C.H. Uh, Spurgeon said, God's sovereignty is the most comforting, but also the most excitedly hated reality of God amongst the church. And that's so sad that we are so divided on that. But I'd like to look us, for us to turn to Jesus this morning to see his character of sovereignty and allow him as sovereign to comfort us, to reassure us, to calm us, and to bring us to praise and rejoicing in his life. Um, the, the epistle here that Paul writes to the Philippians, this is what's called a prison epistle. It's believed that he wrote this in her house arrest before his martyrdom in Rome. And from the very jump with Paul's relationship with this city, with this church, it has gone very different than his expectations. I'm going to give you a really fast run-through of Acts 16 in about six points there. Uh, Paul is looking where to go to proclaim the gospel of God in Acts, Acts chapter 16. He's denied twice of where he believes God's calling him. He's walking by faith. God says, nope, not there. Nope, not there. He has to give him a dream or a vision in the night where a Macedonian man says, come to us. Immediately, Paul wakes up, hops on a ship. He lands in the city of Philippi, and he stumbles across a prayer group there down by a river, and specifically a woman of prominence named Lydia, who receives Christ at the preaching of God's word, her and her household. And you're thinking, right on. It didn't go according to his expectation, but it resulted in someone coming to know Christ. That's what it's all about, right? And you're thinking, Acts 16 is going pretty well. God is good because he's working good. And here we, we kind of find our definition of good, when things work out for me, when things work out like I think it should. God calls me to this place, of course, because I'm meant to preach the gospel to that person, that person comes to know Christ. Except Acts 16 goes on, and right after we meet Lydia, who comes to know Christ, then we meet another girl immediately after. And this girl has a spirit of divination in her. She she's possessed 
by a demon. And those who are in the city, in the marketplace, are using that power for their own glory and for their own prominence and selling all the things that they have. So when Paul and Silas walk into the city, this girl sees them and begins to follow them and begins to shout and yell in a very distracting way why Paul and Silas are there. And Paul turns without a second thought and casts the demon out of this girl. Yay for her, right? She no longer is terrorized by a demon. Praise God for that. And praise God that Paul had the wisdom to see that. This wasn't, you know, something that was good. This was actually something that was bad. This was something that was distracting from the glory of Jesus, even though it was using Jesus' name. It was distracting away from God. Paul cast out the demon from the girl. She's freed from that possession. But though she's freed, the people that were using her are quite upset about this. No longer are they able to use her for their own money and their own advances and their own prominence. And in their anger, they bring Paul before the council, and there they beat Paul and Silas. They strip them of their robes, they beat them with rods, and they bring them into the innermost prison there in Philippi. Dark, wet, horribly unclean. Yay? Question mark? <laughs> Acts 16 started so well. And according to, even in a sense, our expectation, when we follow God and when we trust the Lord by faith, good things happen. Lydia. We get the Lydias of life. But what about in that same action of trust and faith, right after the Lydias, we meet the girls with the spirit of divination? What happens then? And what's the point of that? That is God allowing that to happen. Just as much as he is allowing us to interact with the Lydias of this world. Because in those circumstances, God is asking the question, whom do you trust? Whom do you trust when life goes left, when you expected it to go right? Quote, unquote. Right, taking it in multiple senses there. Now we know the story, how it ends in Acts. Paul and Silas are doing the unexpected. In their prison, they are praising. They're praying to the Lord, and it's having a massive effect. Because God then answers that prayer and does the unexpected. And he releases them from their cells and releases them from their chains, and we get the jailer who comes to know Christ as well. Very interesting account, Acts 16. Begins and ends with God in his sovereignty freeing Paul and Silas, to proclaim the gospel in good circumstances, but also in bad circumstances, or when circumstances did not seem to go the way they expected. And it reminds me from the very beginning, I think what Paul's going to come back to and what he's, what he's referencing here in chapter 1 to the Philippians of that same city in which he was imprisoned. Freedom, joy, and life are not defined by my expectations being met. Freedom and joy in life is Christ, wherever I am physically. Joseph was free, though he was in prison. David was free, living on the run. Paul is free, and he knows life while he is in his prison here. And there's three points I want to look at here in chapter 1. 
from 12 through 26 here in which Paul is, I think, just urging on this church that is doing well to continue to believe and to rest in God who is sovereign and in that rest to know the freedom, the joy, and life that is in Christ. Philippians 1. So rereading this in chapter 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So in my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Here he references two sides of what's happening to him while in this prison. God, who is sovereign, is working doubly for his glory. For his glory. He says in the beginning here, my circumstances, what are his circumstances? Prison. So my, pri- my imprisonment is actually not, being hind- is not hindering the gospel, is not hindering the word of God being spoken. Actually, there is a greater progress of the gospel. Why? 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, because God's word does not have any chains. 2 Timothy 2, you can, God's word is not imprisoned. Paul says, I might be imprisoned, but God's word is free to move because God is not in prison. God is whom our freedom is. It's God's word. Though I'm in prison physically, God's word is able to advance and it's free to move just as God desires it. Paul's like, they might think I'm the captive, but in actuality, they're my captives. They are my captives to the word of God. It's believed that under this house arrest that the Praetorian guard, you know, this, this guard that was given to um, be with Paul, watch him at all times, would have either been chained to him so that if he ran, he, you know, they went with him, or they were both chained in the same circumstances right there together. And Paul says, well, while I got you, let me tell you while I'm here. Why am I here? The greater progress of Jesus. What is my hope at the end of this? Well, that's actually the same answer. Jesus, and this is how. And in between, let me tell you about what I believe about this Jesus. And he says, in this captivity, there is progress of the gospel. It seems to be that these Romans who are chained to him are now being taken by the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says, I could not have asked for better circumstances I could not have seen this coming. Praise God who is working all things together for good. I think when Paul slept at night, he slept at peace. Again, another one of Charles Spurgeon's quotes, he says, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. I think this is Paul just enjoying watching what God is doing. He has brought him to this point. Does God know that? Absolutely. Is God, does God see him in his prison? Absolutely. And is God working even this together for his glory and good? Absolutely. And Paul is just enjoying watching this happen through him. But not just the Praetorian Guard. Not only are they advancing and progressing in the faith, what he says here, and then in verse 14, the brethren as well, upon hearing this report, when they come and visit me, and as I share what God has been doing, even in this, 
they are being spurred on and encouraged in their faith to trust God in their prisons, whatever that might look like, in their trials, in their circumstance that are going sideways. They're being spurred on to proclaim the word of God far more with courage without fear. That last bit is so important, without fear. What the sovereignty of God is really bringing us to is a life that is free of fear. When, when truly believing that God sees all things, he knows all things, and he's working all things together for us who love him and trust him, this frees us from anxiety. This frees us from fear. This allows us to walk with courage, with excitement, with joy, knowing that God is at work through individuals just like us. Paul's confidence is tangible. It is affecting the brethren around him. In our second year program, we, um, we do a lot of different outdoor things still. Uh, one of those is a run that we have the second years do. We give them an hour, and we have what's called an eight-mile loop that is around us. It's actually not eight miles. It's about seven and a half, but we call it an eight-mile loop. And we bring them to the gate, and John tells them, all right, you have an hour. Get as far as you can. Run as much as you want. You can walk. You can jog. You can run, then walk. You can walk, then run. doesn't matter to me. But at the beginning of the year, the idea is get as far as you can. And then at the end of the second year program, we're going to do it again, one of the last weeks of school. And the goal is to beat the mark that you had before you. Little thing, fun thing, a joyful thing. And so the second years ran out, and I was just about to do my class with the first years. And one of the second years came in. His name was Justin. I said, hey, how did the run go? And he was like, oh, man, it killed me. (laughs) It's hot, right? Right at the beginning of September. Got to love it. He's like, it killed me. I said, how far did you get? He said, actually, I made it the whole way. He was not expecting to. He said, I made it the whole way. And I was surprised. I was shocked, right? Because... He didn't expect to do it. I said, really? How did, that, how did that happen? He said, well, I was running with another second year, and her name was Emily. He said, I was running next to Emily, and I thought to myself, I can't stop. She's not stopping, right? <laughs> not only are guys competitive, but especially when there's a girl running next to them, they're like, then they get ultra competitive. I can't be the one to quit, right? And so he's like, well, Emily just kept running. And so I kept running. He said, we made it the whole way around. So I went and I talked to Emily after class. I said, hey, how did that run go for you? She goes, it kicked my butt. I said, really? She goes, yeah, but I was running next to Justin. And I knew if Justin stopped, then I would stop. None of this was communicated between them. It was kind of this awkward like run, like, you still running? Okay, I'm still running. You still running? Yeah, I'm still, I'm still running. You know, nothing communicated verbally. But just by running, cause the other, the encouragement to keep running. I don't want to stop. That's that's the tangible reality that we share in the body of Christ. As we persevere under trials, as we just continue to fight and hold that God's promises are good 
and they're true. And I'm seeing God at work in my life way more and differently than I expected to. Just by the endurance of our faith is causing endurance to be considered in the lives of the brethren around us. Just by their example, nonverbal or verbal, has that power. God has that power to continue to encourage his saints. We have no idea what our actions are doing in the course of hope and confidence or fear and doubt in the lives of the believer. You know, if Paul would have succumbed and given in, right, started flying the white flag, who knows what that would have done to the body of Christ on the outside, what that would have caused in their own hearts and lives. But Paul's not done. He has more to say about this joyful, sovereign God that he is living in the hands of. Verse 15, he said, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter are doing it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Here's a crazy thought. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, or in this, I rejoice. We don't really know who those people are that Paul is speaking of here. These some that are preaching Christ from envy, strife, and selfish ambition. Um, some think it's those who are within the church that have a more legalistic wing to them. Maybe some of those of the church who still are very closely tied to Judaism and they didn't quite understand or support the entire message of Paul when he is speaking of this grace of God, when he is speaking of, you know, Jesus who is alive and living through us as the Messiah, and there's nothing that the law gives us now. It is simply the tutor that brings to Christ. So some might be thinking, no, that, that's too far-fetched. That's too extreme. That's a little bit too much for me. There are still people like that in our country today who claim to be Christians, however. Their Bibles, they have taken scissors to it, and they have taken out every epistle written by Paul. We're okay with John, we're okay with Peter, we're okay with the apostles, but we don't like Paul. Too condemning, too confusing, too hard to understand. And so they remove that part of him. Still happens to this day. These could be individuals that are seeing the effect that Paul was having in the lives of this growing movement called The Way, and they're wanting a name for themselves. Taking what Paul said, but it, they are standing by their own party, standing by their own party at his expense, wanting to separate themselves. This wasn't a, a new idea. This is partially why Jesus, when he's preaching in the early part of his years, he says, I'm going to leave the ministry or separate myself from the ministry of John the Baptist. Because you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and religious leaders that are wanting to create this kind of rivalry between Jesus and John the Baptist. You know, who do we listen to? Who has more authority? Who's, you know, understanding more of the scriptures? And Jesus is like, John is having a great ministry, and I'm not here to interrupt that. I'm not here to mess with that. 
God has sent him ahead of me. He is proclaiming about me. We're not on different teams. And so Jesus actually removes himself and goes north for his ministry until the death of John the Baptist. Because Jesus knows what's at stake here in this division is the glory of God. Paul sees right through this attack. He sees right through this distraction. If I give attention to this too much, that attention is going to be negative publicity. And even negative publicity brings attention to the wrong place. He says, it's neither here nor there. What I'm concerned about is God's word. And God's word is going forth. And I don't understand necessarily how God can use it. That's his business because it's his word and it's his effect that he can have through his spirit upon his people that he knows. In that, I rejoice. It's not about them or me. Even slandering my name, it's not about them or me. It's not about my ministry. It's not about me. It's about God's word going forth and Jesus' name being proclaimed. There's an account that I stumbled upon between a couple men, John Wesley and George Whitfield in England. And it was a matter of public record that these two great English evangelists disagreed quite a lot on doctrinal matters within the church. Both were widely successful, quote-unquote, I don't like that term, but widely successful in their uh, ministries of preaching to thousands and seeing multitudes come to Christ, both in their own terms, God using both of them much. And it was reported that once someone asked John Wesley if he expected to see George Whitfield in heaven, and his response was sharp and it was quick, and he said, no. No, I do not. And this intrigued the questioner greatly. He said, no. Why, why not? <laughs> Wanting to know deeper, what was the reason of that? And upon that answer, he said, no, no, I do not. Because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far that I will not see him. It was not what that questioner expected. And John Wesley saw what was at stake. He understood the trap. And he answered it rather in tongue-in-cheek. Of course, he's English, right? It's just second nature to them. Envy and strife and jealousy and if we just allow those thoughts to resonate in our heart, it will take the glory of God from our faces. It will dim the glory of God that is shining in our hearts. John Wesley knew it's not about him or me. It is about the glory of God, even though we differ much. How often do you hear that in the church today? The praise and the championing of Christ, even amongst doctrinal differences amongst us within quote-unquote Christendom. How often do you hear what is good about another ministry, first and foremost, before you hear the things of like, oh, I'd be hesitant. I'd be worried about that church. 
I wouldn't go there personally. How quick are we to champion what is good? Not very quick. Why is that? Because that is supernatural. It is supernatural to find what is good in one another, even in our differences. It is supernatural to set aside what we first have seen in the flesh. And guarantee it's the first thing we see. We see the negatives. We see the differences. We see what we don't like in one another, in churches, in ministries. That's natural because that's your flesh. What is supernatural is to set that aside and to say, but God's word is going forth in this way. And in that, I rejoice. I don't understand this passage to the degree, you know, how far does Paul go with that? How far is too far, right? Taking God's name in vain. Would I ever encourage someone, you know, and, and find the good if someone going to a Roman Catholic church? Probably not. Probably not. I first ask a lot of questions before I give my answers of why that is. But the Mormons use Jesus' name, but to what degree? <laughs> you know, you're not going to champion Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or something like the Roman Catholic Church. But it is a check to my spirit. What is my initial reaction when someone maybe doesn't go to Bernie Bible Church? Someone maybe doesn't hold to a theology that I might hold to. My first reaction, honestly, is to attack. It's to show them why they're wrong. Rather than hear, listen, ask good questions. How do you see Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? I need that in my life because honestly, none of us, this side of heaven, are perfected in our theology. None of us, this side of heaven, are perfect in our theology. 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he says in chapter 2, my message and my preacher Am I preaching? We're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of power of the Spirit so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I don't want to make disciples of my opinion, of my morals, of my theology. I want people to see Christ in his word and let God do the transforming work in his time, in his way. And at the end of this section, here of God's word, this rejoicing how can Paul rejoice in this? How can Paul rejoice in people proclaiming Christ with envy, selfish ambition, and strife? Again, he says it's God's word, which is his truth, which is in his hands for his purposes, and God is undefeated. He is undefeated. And so I will rejoice in his sovereignty. How can Paul keep this perspective so near to his mind? He goes on to say in verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Two tangible reminders that Paul gives us how we can endure how we can endure with the perspective that God is sovereign even in this. He says, first thing is your prayers. Thank you for your prayers. How does our prayer affect one another? When I asked that question at Bible school, I grab a marker 
and I go to the board, and I put a big question mark. We have no idea. We know that we are called to pray for one another. We know that we are called to bear one another's burdens. Jesus prayed for his disciples. But how does that tangibly affect us? That is a mystery of God that we do not see. He calls us to pray. And he says, when you pray for one another, and that person is walking by faith, and they will begin to experience the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. How that happens, to what effect does that happen, and when does that happen, we don't know. Question mark. <laughs> it's the mystery of God. But what he has revealed is that we are to pray. And it does accomplish something in the lives of those that we are praying for. Not just does it accomplish you know, something in the life that we're, of the people that we're praying for, but it accomplishes so much more in me. When I have the humility to pray for someone rather than myself every single day, when I have the humility of mind to seek one another and they're better, more important than myself, that, that's helping me just in my own life see Jesus, know Jesus, and to know that he is sovereign and he holds all things in his hands. It strengthens my fellowship with him just as much as it's strengthening my fellowship with one another. Your prayers and the provision of Jesus Christ. Together we are his body, representing him, walking in a manner that is worthy of his name. God provides, in his provision, he provides for his glory to be manifested, be manifested amongst us. God does not provide for our mantras to be furthered. God does not provide for our opinions or our ideas or our philosophies to be promoted. He provides according to the spirit of Jesus Christ so that his glory will resound through us to the ends of the earth. That is why he's providing. Please make no mistake about it. This is, not a, this is not for me, selfishly. This is not just for me to experience the grace of God and to hold it as a present. His glory, his desires, his provision to me are always meant to be displayed through me. That his glory would resound throughout this world, throughout this earth. Your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. Now here's the question. What is Paul's expectation? What is his hope? And he says that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body. Whether that's life or death. This is something supernatural. If, the, if we haven't tasted the supernatural yet of how Paul is seeing life, then this should be the nail in the coffin. This really should bring us truly to our knees as we see God, that he is sovereign in life or death, 
Because God does not see death as we see death. He hates death because it's not how he created this world. But for those who know Jesus, death is not the end. Death is not the worst thing that could happen to us. Paul's actually going to go on to say, verse 21, death is gain. That is one of the most, of all the verses in, in, you know, in Scripture, this one is one of the most countercultural that was spoken then that is still speaking today. To die is gain. How can someone have that perspective? It's through the provision of Jesus Christ, remembering that death is not the end. Death has been conquered in life. The only thing that hinders, doesn't stop, but that hinders Christ being exalted in this world through me is when I exalt my expectations. When I choose to exalt how I think life should go, how I think death should, or when I think death should be, how I think my obedience should be played out and rewarded to me, that is when Christ and his work are hindered in this world. When I'm exalting my own expectations. Period. But Paul says, Christ is going to be exalted. Whether in my life or my death, Christ is exalted. That frees us from the crippling fear of anxiety. When I know that my life and my freedom and my joy are not held in hands so fragile such as mine. When I first came to camp, I was 11 years old, and my mom signed me up for the tower. Our tower challenge at his hill, you know, lots of different things you could do. I was hyper fearful of heights. I was that kid, if you've been to his hill, that approaches the rock wall thinking, this, this seems okay from the ground. And then I get about that seven, eight feet height where there's that, a ledge. And I was that camper that stopped looking down, thinking I was on Everest, saying, get me off this thing right now. And the, the counselors then were, were not as so easily persuaded as they are now. They would hold you there for a while. And they really wanted you to keep going. I mean, borderline peer pressure, you know? And I'm just holding on to these rocks, thinking to let go is death. I'm seven feet above the ground. But to let go is death. And they finally relent, and they say, okay, Connor, hold on to the rope. I'll bring you down. And for some reason, all that fear leaves me, and I let go of the rock, and I hold on to the rope. It made no sense. It wasn't until I was 18 until I conquered that rock wall. <laughs> I went to camp from 11 till 17, 18. And it was not until I went to Bible school, my first year, in the first week, we would go down to the tower, and we'd have this activity for a whole afternoon where you know, the staff would come out, and they'd be on the tower, and they'd invite us as students to come and to challenge ourselves. And I said, Connor, today is the day. I'm going to conquer this. <laughs> well, I'm 18 years old, right? I get up, start climbing, and I get to that ledge, right? And I get a little bit past that ledge, and I begin to have that anxiety come back up. And I don't remember who is doing my belay, but they remember, I just remember them saying, Connor, you can trust the rope. I have you. And at 18, I said, I'm just going to believe it. 
I was so tired of living with this fear and being conquered by this anxiety and fear. I'm just going to trust what they're saying. And I began to climb. And I got higher and I higher. And I reached for a rock. And the worst possible thing that I could have thought happened to me. My hand slipped. Because at this point, I'm still climbing with all arm. No leg. So no muscle in the, in the uh, forearm there. I reach, have no grip, and I slip. You know what happened? Nothing. I just swung there. <laughs> and I'm like looking down and be like, the rope's got me. The rope's got me. Made it to the top. And I climbed down. A couple weeks later, went up again. I said, this time I barely made it. <laughs> you know, just barely made it. But the next time I go up, now I have full assurance I'm trusting this rope. And I'm making reaches. I'm jumping from rock to rock. You know, I'm trying to do this as fast as I can. Later on, we get Josh and Bo Wagamoon. <laughs> and they're like running up this wall. You know, and kids are looking around and they're asking, how are they doing that? You know what I said? Because they can trust the rope that they're not going to fall. It gives them the fullness of freedom to live. When we have become convinced that God is sovereign in my life and I can trust him, that's when we are vulnerable with our lives. That's when we open our hearts to truly see in life or in death, God is good. And now, now I'm walking in the freedom and the joy that God has saved me to know. To live is Christ. To die is gain. There is no one freer than the one who has chosen to believe that God is sovereign and the fullness of my life is held in the palm of his hands. I will know confidence. I will know courage. I will know the freedom, the joy, and the life that God has saved me to know. Whom have I in heaven but you? My strength, my heart will fail, but the nearness of God is my good. Freedom, joy, and life, invincible in the hands of Jesus. We know that. You know that. I know you know that because you've been going here to Bernie Bible and you've been sitting under Charlie for however many years or however many weeks you've been here. I know that you know this. I know this. But am I believing it? It's a whole separate question. I know this to be true. I know God is that in my life. But am I climbing the wall? Am I taking the next step in that freedom? Knowing and walking in the freedom, the joy in life. I'll know that when Jesus becomes my exaltation and not my own expectations. When Jesus is exalted in life and death, in reward or seemingly not reward, in prison or freedom, Christ is my life. He is my freedom. In this I rejoice. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Your sovereignty is so comforting. 
again to us, God. We know that you love us. We know that you are for us, God. We know that you are actively working all things together for our good. But it's not just for our good to be held in our hands and to be experienced and to make my life better. God, your definition is so radically different than how I would define good according to my own expectations. And so, God, I pray that you would bring us not to our expectations being met, that you, but you would change our heart to see how you define good, how you define life, and how you define freedom. And that is to bring us back to a place of trust and by faith walking in you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I pray that we would not be our own hindrance to that freedom, God, by exalting our expectations, but that we would know that you are good and in you working good in our life is for your glory to be manifested through us. And that would be our good. This is why we rejoice. May we have eyes to see that a little more clearer today and in these days to come, however many days that you've allotted in our care. In your name we pray. Amen.